The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Welcome again, everybody, and a big welcome to Ajahn Chandiko for visiting us once more. It's probably been almost a half dozen times now that Ajahn Chandiko has come to Minneapolis. Of course, he grew up here, went out of Carleton College, graduated and uh, uh, studied uh, East Asian studies, you said, yeah. at, at Carleton, and went to Asia shortly after that, where I actually practiced at the Minnesota Zen Center for a while, and then went to Asia, eventually ended up at Wakananda Cha, Ajahn Cha's International Monastery in Thailand, uh, where he practiced for a number of years, and after he became a more senior monk, he traveled around and had the opportunity to meet with many of the great Thai forest monks of the last, kind of the last generation, and uh, really fortunate to have somebody who's had that experience, um, people practicing the way the Buddha taught people to practice, and really receiving the fruits of that practice. And so here at a corner of Minneapolis, we get our own Thai forest monk, and we're really grateful for that. Ajahn's been practicing as a monk now for 21 years, is that right? Yeah. 21 years, so it's now a senior Ajahn. <laughs> so we're especially fortunate. Thanks so much for coming again, Ajahn. My pleasure. And the title tonight is 12, uh, 1250 Arhats. Hmm, yeah. Okay, now without the microphone, if I speak at this level, can people hear me? Yeah, is that all right? How is that? Can people hear me? It's all right? Better. Better. Okay. So wait if you at some point can't hear. Or if you just are happy. (laughs) 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 Just expression of spontaneous joy. Oh, it's really good to be back. It uh, always feels like coming back, seeing old friends from past retreats and Dave and Dude, people from from uh, New Kalyanamita, good Dharma friends from the recent retreat. Uh, if I'm <clears throat> if I'd be prone to um, value judgments, I'd say Common Ground is one of my favorite meditation centers in the world, <laughs> <laughs> for good reason. Uh, normally, I don't plan my talks. We just speak uh, spontaneously, but of course, they like to have a title. So, the title for this talk is 1,250 Arhats, which I thought would be broad enough <laughs> to cover just about any topic that spontaneously arose. <clears throat> but there's a... Um, a short text that I want to comment on this evening. It comes from a time shortly after the Buddha's enlightenment, uh, in the, approximately in the first year or so after the Buddha was enlightened. Uh, he, as you probably know, uh, the first five disciples were, were the, uh, uh, the first five arhats in the world, fully enlightened people who would purify their consciousness completely and uh, 
then shortly after that, the Buddha went off to study with a group of um, meditator ascetics and uh, spent time with them and eventually they all became his disciples. Shortly after that, the Buddha was in uh, the North Indian area and during that uh, period of time, the, the normal tradition, the regular tradition, was that on the full moons and the, the new moons, <clears throat> all the ascetics in a particular group would get together, gather together and um, uh, share their practices, either uh, meditate together or they would uh, sometimes uh, reinforce their teachings, sometimes listen to a talk. So there was one occasion, which was a full moon night, apparently in February, and the Buddha was in a particular area, and everyone heard the Buddha was in the area, so there was a spontaneous gathering of 1,250 arhats. In the early days, uh, the Buddha's disciples had quite a lot of uh, ability to realize the Dhamma quickly, so his uh, early disciples uh, seem to have made very quick progress. So at this meeting, unplanned, uh, in the full moonlight, uh, the Buddha suddenly had an audience of 1,250 fully enlightened disciples. So the teaching that he gave them was a rather succinct teaching. When you're talking to an audience of fully enlightened people, you don't need to go into a whole lot of detail. <laughs> they had the basis of the practice down. But still, he, he knew that this was going to be the nucleus of what would later become the Buddhist tradition. So he wanted to give them a teaching which was uh, something which was easy to remember, very succinct, uh, powerful to the point, something which could be taken deeply and then transferred uh, and spread around. This teaching is called the Owada Patimoka Gata. And the first line goes Kanti Paramang Tapotitika. Patient endurance is the ultimate ascetic practice. Now, the majority of the people in the audience that the Buddha was talking to were formerly very hardcore ascetics. Like the Buddha himself in his own quest for enlightenment, uh, he tried that path, uh, practicing various types of ascetic practices, uh, very, very diligently, very hardcore, often uh, eating just a minimal amount, uh, until he discovered that that really wasn't going to work. <clears throat> but... Uh, in the first year after his enlightenment, he told the first 60 disciples to go off and uh, spread the Dhamma to the many folk. And he said, well, I'm going to go spend some time with the Kasapa brothers. And the Kasapa brothers were three brothers who uh, were the head of an order of 1,000 long, matted hair, naked ascetics. These were hardcore, professional, uh, renunciant ascetics who lived in the wild, uh, naked, hardly any possessions, uh, 
probably no possessions at all. Uh, generally, they were fire worshippers. And so the Buddha went and lived with them. And each Kasapa brother had their own group of disciples. And they were very impressed with him, but the Kasapa brothers were a bit um, hard to convince, especially the oldest brother. But after a period of time, Buddha being relatively patient, he won over the senior Kasapa brother and then got all of the disciples together and the Buddha gave a, a very famous Dhamma teaching called the Fire Sermon or the Fire Dhamma Talk. And then they all shaved off their long matted hair and threw it into the Ganges and floated down the river and the other ascetics saw it and they got nervous and they came up and they said, Why'd you, where's, where are all the dreadlocks coming from? What happened? <clears throat> he says, it's not chemotherapy. We, we decided to follow the Buddha. <laughs> and then <clears throat> group by group, the, the Buddha won over all 1,000 matted hair ascetics. Now, it's interesting to reflect that the Buddha happened to choose uh, a shaven head as his symbol. could have easily been um, long, matted dreadlocks. Um, could have easily chosen, to, chosen the path of being uh, naked ascetics, long dreadlocks. I'm not sure if that would have made Buddhism more or less popular in the West. <laughs> but... <clears throat> um, but uh, in this audience, he, he was addressing these former very hardcore ascetics. And at that time, their idea of practice was burning off all of their old karma uh, to purify the consciousness. And although from the 21st century perspective, worshiping fire and burning off all, all one's old karma with uh, ascetic practices torturing the body might seem difficult to understand but there's a certain uh, logical uh, way of looking at it as well you know if in your own meditation often you know, if you just sit quietly the results of our past karma things that we've said and done in the past will tend to arise in consciousness and if we're patient with it accepting it watching it <clears throat> then it will cease. It was like uh, our old karma will come up, arise in consciousness, we're aware, accept, and uh, it ceases by itself. Now their idea was, um, often they, uh, you know, when, when, when bad karma that we've done in the past arises in consciousness as pain, but we can let it go, it feels like, okay, there's a release there. So we could speed up the process if we just induce more pain. You know, and they were really serious. They, they, they were striving for freedom from uh, the round of rebirth, samsara. And so they didn't want to waste time. You know, so, well, you know, we're, we're, we really want to go for it. So let's uh, just bring up as much pain as possible. You know, we'll live very simply. Um, we'll be exposed to the weather. You know, having no clothes in northern India in the winter uh, was a very, very tough practice. Bathing in the, the cold river in the middle of winter, very, very tough. Uh, surviving in very little food. Uh, these were very, very sincere practitioners. And so they had uh, a lot of 
foundation in their practice. And they probably had pretty good concentration because they're always focusing on the fire as a meditation object. So the Buddha was addressing these very hardcore professional aesthetics. And the first line of this teaching is patient endurance is the ultimate ascetic practice. So of all the ascetic practices, ways of torturing the body, fasting, uh, going without clothes, uh, sleeping in beds of thorns, the ultimate, the toughest, the most hardcore ascetic practice is simply being patient. Now, that's a whole way of looking at things very differently. And like many teachings that the Buddha gives, he'll take an existing uh, concept or way of uh, looking at things in the time of the Buddha, and he'll, he'll kind of incorporate that, but then look at it from a different angle. And so this is one such occasion. So the ultimate ascetic practice, the most hardcore thing we can do for purifying our consciousness is just being patient. It's easy, right? It's easy to be patient. But it's not so easy sometimes. And uh, you know, being patient with other people, being patient with not always getting what we want, being patient with sometimes getting the things we don't want, separation from those things that we love, all the things in life which can be difficult, you know, we have a choice. We can we can complain. We can blame it on others. We can blame it on a situation. We can, we can do all sorts of things which just increase the suffering, but that doesn't actually lead to greater benefit, and it doesn't lead to liberation from it. It just leads to compounding the situation. So no matter what it is that's arising, just being patient is a very simple quality of being patient is surprisingly profound. Anytime anger arises, be aware of it, accept it fully, you know, without judging it, and then just be patient with it. Desire arises, same thing, aware, be patient, just be patient. We're not getting what we want, take a deep breath, just be patient with it. And although that sounds simple, doing that over and over and over and over again does grind away and gradually purify our heart. <clears throat> Just got back from teaching a retreat in northern Minnesota and uh, I like to get people out into the woods, out in the forest, because they have to be patient. If you do a retreat in a nice, comfortable retreat center with soft beds, temperature always is always just right, and uh, you know, you've got your you've got your sink, convenient place to wash, take showers, hot water. You got there's no mosquitoes around, and it's just. It's just so comfortable, wonderful. <clears throat> but if you get out in the forest, surrounded by nature, live very simply, live on the ground, living in a tent, surrounded by many, many sentient beings called mosquitoes, <laughs> I'm 
sharing a practice and physical sustenance with all of these beings, uh, then it takes a lot of patience. You're exposed to the, uh, the weather. Every time we go up there, we have perfect weather for practice. It's usually <laughs> perfect weather for developing patient endurance. Um, it's usually cold, windy, rainy. <clears throat> this year was no different. We order this specifically you know, to, to help people in their practice. Just being patient. I was actually very impressed with the people who were up there because uh, um, no one complained. Maybe uh, internally. We're keeping noble silence, so they had no choice. <laughs> but, um, no, just sometimes just being uh, close to nature, just living simply, means that we're exposing ourselves to a bit more of um, discomfort. I mean, to, to live a life which is so um, protected from any form of discomfort, physical discomfort, visual discomfort, oral discomfort, right? life becomes very complicated. You have to have all this technology and everything has to be just right. And if one thing's off, then ooh, it spoils everything. When you're out in the forest, it's just like, well, just, just be patient. You know, it doesn't have to be the perfect temperature. It's okay. You've got mosquitoes biting occasionally. It's not a physical sensation which I would seek out, but it, it's not terrible. It's okay. It's like sharing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, there's just innumerable opportunities for just being patient and content. You know, if we can learn how to be content with wherever we are, whatever we're doing, uh, whatever situation that we find ourselves in, it's very simple practice, uh, but very profound. It means that no matter where we are, we learn that we have enough to be happy right where we are. So that's why the very first line of this teaching to this multitude of fully enlightened beings was patient endurance is the ultimate ascetic practice. Ajahn Chah, <clears throat> Ajahn Chah loved to teach this. It's one of his main teachings. In one of his trips to the West, <clears throat> he was asked, well, what uh, meditation technique do you teach? You Anapanasati, mindfulness of the breath, physical sensations, uh, repeating a word individually. You know, what is it? <clears throat> and uh, Ajahn Chah said, I teach frustration. <laughs> I frustrate my disciples' <clears throat> desires. Whatever my dis disciples want, I frustrate it. <laughs> And he was so good at being able to hone in on people. You know, it took him like a split second to sum up somebody. You know exactly where their strengths and weaknesses were and where their desires were. And he was just um, very, very good at giving them what exactly what they didn't want. And uh, it was very good for developing patient endurance. When I was a young monk in Thailand, 
Uh, Ajahn Chah's recommended practice was to sit meditation all night long on the full moon, new moon, and quarter moons, so the whole Sangha would there practice together. And that's just one more occasion where we would have to develop a lot of patient endurance. Just sitting all night, sitting meditation all night long is a great idea at 7 p.m. <laughs> 8 p.m. still a pretty good idea. I'm looking forward to it. Very nice. 10 o'clock is starting to okay, bring up some energy. 11:30 is starting to will to bed, but then we get a cup of tea at midnight. That helps a bit. 2 a.m. to really have to start developing this uh, just patience. Patience with the desire to sleep. Patience with the with the discomfort of just being awake, bringing up awakeness, bringing up the quality of staying with it, persistence over and over and over again. And that's what patience is, just coming back to the present moment again and again and again. And, and each time the defilements arise, <clears throat> old stories arise, unpleasant memories arise, Future desires arise, just saying, there it is again. Just be patient with it. There it is again. Ajahn Chah would uh, compare our defilements of mind to like this big tiger. And uh, mindfulness or patience is just like putting it in a cage and don't feed it. And you're just being just being patient with it, and then it gradually loses strength. You don't have to kind of go in there and try to kill the tiger. Just don't feed it. <laughs> but it's a very strong habit to keep feeding our tigers. So patience, just being patient, is a, a powerful way of not feeding a lot of the uh, tigers of anger and frustration and stress and anxiety and all of those things which tend to make life less pleasant than it could be. So that's the first line. Second line of this teaching goes, Nibbanang Paramang Vadanti Buddha. Enlightenment, say the Buddhas, is supreme. Again, the Buddhas is just um, stating that the purpose, the overall purpose of his teaching, purpose of the Dhamma practice, his path is Nibbana. Nibbana literally means cooling. It's like cooling the fires. Again, he's um, speaking to mainly the uh, uh, 1,000 fire-worshipping ascetics. In the fire sermon, he again took that simile and said, you know, what's really on fire is our eyes on fire, our ears are on fire, our bodies are on fire, our perceptions are on fire, our thoughts are on fire. And that's where the fire ceases. Enlightenment, Nibbana then, is the cooling and ceasing of all the fires. Next two lines are, a homeless one does not injure another, and one who mistreats another is not a contemplative. So there again, we have the emphasis on nonviolence right from the very beginning. It's one of the main tenets of Buddhism. 
kindness, compassion to one another, to all beings, one of the central tenets of the Buddhist teaching. The next stanza is, if you wanted to sum up all the teachings of the Buddha in one nutshell, then you could sum it up in this next stanza. So great and... Oh, never mind. We'll skip that one. <laughs> Third stanza. No. No, this uh, this stanza is to be found in the Dhammapada as well as other places. Refraining from unwholesome actions, developing wholesome actions to their utmost, and purifying one's consciousness, this is the Buddhist teaching. So to begin with, refraining from unwholesome actions. Now in terms of purifying our stream of consciousness, the Buddha again was working with karma. And the way the Buddha understood the law of karma was that it was very much a dynamic process. It had nothing to do with fatalism. It's not like, oh, this is my karma. I have to be this way. No. All of our past karma, all of the results of everything we've done in the um, millennia of eons in the past are all ripening right now. Whatever, whatever is uh, in the past has led us to this present moment, and this is the result of a past karma. Right now, this is probably a result of a lot of good karma that has brought you to a wholesome place like common ground. But at each moment that we're experiencing, all the results of our, our old karma have led us to this moment, and then how we respond to this moment is literally creating our own future moment by moment. So if we respond in a way which is going to be skillful, developing wholesome states of mind, responding with mindfulness, responding with kindness, compassion, uh, concentration, whatever, the whole range of wholesome states of mind, then we're literally creating a future which is going to be more happy. Which is which I think a lot of people would like to do. But sometimes our habits of mind are just so strong that even though we know, okay, I should respond to this in a wholesome way, that should just makes it even more difficult if we're not able to. Right? Sometimes situations just lead us to a situation and lead us to this point where we, it's just too much not to respond with frustration or anger or sometimes a sharp word. It's good to be patient with yourself. It's good to be forgiving with ourselves. We can't expect perfection. We can't expect to respond to every single moment with a wholesome state of mind. But we can gradually work in that direction. But we can start with the big things. I will intentionally refrain from killing other people. I will not strangle my immediate family members. And then refine it from there. Give yourself credit. Well, at least I haven't killed anyone today. All right? We'll work on a wholesome sense of self-esteem. Okay? Look, 
focus on the positive. I haven't killed anyone today. Okay, maybe I'll work on nonviolence towards all living beings, mosquitoes included. And uh, at least we can start the Buddhist practice by refraining from unwholesome actions as much as possible. This is where precepts come in. Five precepts. That's something everybody can do. That's within everyone's ability. Not intentionally killing, um, not stealing, not um, harming people through sexual or romantic relations, um, not intentionally lying, and not taking intoxicants. Especially the last one, you know, if you've been on a retreat working really hard to develop clarity of mindfulness, you know, that's very fragile. And if we, well, it depends on what kind of consciousness we want to develop. You know, but if if uh, clear awareness is something that we value, then fifth precept, again, is just so helpful. So re precepts then can be refined um, more and more. So we try to stop making unwholesome karma. Everything that we say, again, is an opportunity for reflecting. Now, <clears throat> what what's going to be the result of, of what I say? Right? Sometimes even if we say something which is true, if we don't say it at the right time, at the right place, in the right way, in the right mind state, then it doesn't necessarily have uh, good results. So all these factors are good to take into consideration to make sure that we're not creating unwholesome karma. Everything that we do has ripples that go out in the world. So if we care about having a positive presence in the world, at least we can try not to do anything harmful. And then the next step of this stanza is developing wholesome actions to their utmost. So once we've, you know, have the intention of not doing anything harmful or reducing those tendencies, then uh, at, at the same time, we can try to develop that which is beneficial to ourselves and to others. So when certain mind states come up, like feeling generous, feeling kind, compassionate, feeling loving, um, uh, being mindful, sense of uh, tranquility that arises in meditation, all of these wholesome mind states the Buddha didn't just say, watch wholesome mind states arise and pass away. He encouraged people to develop them, uh, give them energy, uh, cultivate them, bring them to perfection. If a feeling of uh, kindness starts to rise in your heart, then uh, allow it to grow. You know, a sense of inner peace starts to come up a little bit. Just good. Focus on that. Allow it to grow. Whatever we place our attention on tends to get stronger. So developing wholesome actions to their utmost, again, is something that you know can start from just helping other people, being kind to other people, being generous, and then gradually becomes more and more and more refined as the path develops. The third line is purifying one's consciousness. Now, even if 
you're able to not do any bad karma and you're constantly doing good karma, people will think you're an absolute saint, but it's still not enough to liberate oneself or liberate one's mind from, uh, from, from the cycle of being reborn, uh, to purify the roots of defilements in our minds. And this can only be done through insight, through developing wisdom. So refraining from unwholesome actions, developing all these wholesome actions in our lives that create such a solid foundation, refining meditation that brings us to the point where insight into the true nature of the way things are is possible. And then that's really what uh, creates insight into the sense of self or non-self or what we identify or take as a self. And, and then that's really the key to liberating consciousness once and for all. And then the last line of that stanza, this is the Buddha's teaching. Final stanza says, not disparaging, not injuring, and restraint in line with the monastic code of discipline. The Buddha was one of the most successful uh, CEOs in the history of the world. I mean, he started with a, a very uh, you know, he started with a group of disciples who were very diverse. I mean, some had just shaved off their dreadlocks and put on robes for the first time in years, and um, others were sons of rich families. And he, he had to consider, well, now that we've got 1,250 arahants in the world, how are we going to organize this um, for the greater benefit of people? How are we going to actually... Uh, make the Dhamma available in a way which is going to be of the greatest uh, benefit possible, both at that time and then lasting into the future. So the Buddha gradually developed uh, a monastic code of behavior, of um, clearly spelling out what's appropriate behavior for uh, renunciate and what's inappropriate behavior. Now in the beginning, um, at this stage, all of these uh, disciples would be very well-practiced, well-disciplined. There was a general uh, code of behavior that was expected. But as uh, the teachings became more and more widespread, um, more and more monks and nuns started to ordain, um, there was more and more opportunities for the Buddha to say, actually, this is uh, not an appropriate way for a monastic to behave. And gradually, situation by situation, an entire code of training, called the Buddhist monastic training, was developed. It became so refined, even in the time of the Buddha, that um, you know, it fills volumes. And then once the Buddha passed away, that has been passed on through millennia. Uh, to our tradition today. One of the reasons that 
I decided to ordain in the Thai forest tradition was because they, uh, the tradition was founded as a way of going back to the roots, of trying to do things as much as possible, uh, live as much as possible as they did in the time of the Buddha. And so they went, uh, they went back to, to these texts and, and back to the Buddhist monastic code and started studying it in detail. For the monks, there's 227 rules and maybe a thousand minor rules. And, and even at that time, this is like 150 years ago, the time of Ajahn Mun and Ajahn Sao, <coughs> living in rural Thailand in grass roof huts, not that different from ancient India, and the other people, were, you know, the mainstream monks were saying, you can't live like this in the modern age. You know, it doesn't apply. I mean, they were living in grass bamboo huts and they would, they would still say oh you know the, you know that was appropriate for ancient India but not 19th century rural Thailand the modern age but Ajahn and his uh, generation of disciples including Ajahn Chah uh, decided that they were just going to follow every rule and you know it wasn't just um sort of a blind rule following, but it created a very powerful framework of living within which one is able to experience a lot of joy. Like these days, I don't have to think about all the rules. I don't even think about them all. I just, there's so much a part of my life that I can just drop it completely. I never have to worry about, should I do it this way or that way? Rarely. It's just very freeing, actually. So we found that uh, living by the Buddhist monastic code in our uh, Thai forest tradition is still viable in the modern age. The next line, eating in moderation. Which is interesting. You know, if if the Buddha is giving a uh, teaching to all of these enlightened beings, you know, I'm trying to give just the essence of the teachings, he says, don't overeat. <laughs> <laughs> he must have had modern America in mind. <laughs> so this is moderation in eating. Now, the Buddha didn't say fast, or he didn't say, oh, you're enlightened, go ahead, indulge, right? You're enlightened, you can eat as much as you want. Just pig out. And, uh, and it's interesting, because there were other teachers who were contemporaries of the Buddha who would always encourage fasting you know, as a way to um, torture the body or, or burn up old kama. But the Buddha's way was always moderation. Just enough. Learn how... Learn what just the right amount is to eat. And what is the right amount? And we have to experiment. Different people have different amounts, which are just just right. The way the Buddha looked at food was as medicine for sustaining the body, keeping it healthy so that we can practice the Dhamma. So eating in moderation, then uh, the key. The next line is dwelling in seclusion. 
he knew that as his teaching became more popular, it wouldn't be very long before unenlightened monks would be drawn into the temptation of becoming famous Dhamma teachers. Though the worst thing that can happen to you as a monk. And uh, so he's always strongly encouraging seclusion. The benefits of the benefits of voluntarily taking oneself out of the busyness of life. Of course, we try to do as much as we can to practice in every single situation of life, no matter where we are, no matter how crazy it seems, and do our best to be balanced, grounded, aware, patient, always being patient. And life is forever giving us opportunities to practice patience. But for those people who really want to take the practice another notch, then he recommends just take, take a little step out of the busyness of life. It's going to be very conducive to experiencing some tranquility. That's why I like to take people out into the forest. You can get people out into the forest surrounded by trees and animals and lakes and... Uh, you just feel like, it just feels different. Nature is such a primary teacher. In those days, seclusion was pretty much synonymous with going out into the wilds, going out into the jungle, into the mountains, out of the village, out of the, the noise and distraction of the village, and just, just allow the environment to be conducive to peace of mind rather than to always be almost fighting the environment. Right? I mean, so much of our modern environment can be trying to pull us in the opposite direction of the Dhamma, always you know, stimulating or trying to stimulate unwholesome states of mind or you know, not valuing peace. So for periods of time, it is helpful to be able to step out Dwelling in seclusion. And the next line is Adichite Jaiogo and commitment to the heightened mind. So one steps out of the mainstream for a period of time with a particular purpose. It's a commitment to developing the mind's potential, developing the heart's potential. The word here is jitta. To translate that either as heart or mind, the mental aspect of our existence. In other places, the Buddha defines the term adhijite or heightened mind as um, the very refined stages of samadhi or concentration, known as the jhanas. And for most people, even those people who are very dedicated to meditation and practice, that's a very high standard to set for oneself. 
But, again, the Buddha doesn't say you have to achieve it. He says committed to it. You know, um, saying, well, this is important. This is important enough that I can start working in that direction. If we have um, a long-term goal, a purpose, then we naturally start making decisions which will lead in that direction. And if the heightened mind, heightened consciousness, purification of consciousness is really you know, what we aspire to in the long run, then uh, we'll start making life choices which are going to assist that rather than hinder that. There are certain benefits to having the goal of refining consciousness. One is that it gives a lot of strength to insight practice. Whenever, whenever the mind becomes more serene, calm, relaxed, naturally, there's a certain clarity that arises from that. It's easier to see things as they truly are when the mind's not scattered all over the place. The continuity of mindfulness helps clarity and helps develop wisdom. Also, as mind starts to settle down, it's natural that a source of inner happiness starts to arise. It's just very fortunate that that's the way it is. When, uh, when the mind starts to become more pure, the more happiness and joy it starts to arise. Well, that's fortunate. I mean, our practice is hard enough. Can you imagine if the closer we got to full enlightenment, the more painful it was. No, unfortunately, it's not. It's a path of developing joy. I mean, it's not that each step is joyful. Sometimes far from it. But if we can get a taste, at least at least occasionally, get a taste of a type of happiness or joy that arises from within, then that can give us a whole different perspective on life. Whereas, I mean, every being is generally seeking happiness in one form or another. It's just that the Buddha was smarter about it. I mean, a lot of people seek happiness and, and they end up creating suffering. They say, well, what happened? So, well, that's what delusion is. You know, we're not very good about creating happiness in our life. But when, uh, when we start to taste a bit of joy that comes from within, that's not dependent on other situations, other people, getting everything that we want just right, then uh, a great sense of independence arises. So, actually, I could be happy without all that stuff. And that's, that's, a, that's very important. It's a very important step. And as more happiness arises, then um, the relative quality of what's, what is happiness and what is unhappiness starts to change. You know, things that formerly we considered, oh, this is great happiness, I love this. But if we discover a happiness which is even more satisfying, then the former happiness is like, well, it's not so great, I can let go of that. Because... 
even if we agree with the Buddhist theory about letting go and attachment being the cause for suffering, you can't really force yourself to let go. I mean, you can, but it just bounces back. It's like, oh, I let go of that bell, but I want to let go. Let go. And then I grab it again. But, you know, if I see a better bell, it's like, forget it. I got this bell. No attachment. But I get this bell. And in a sense, that gradual shifting of one's say, attachment or one's orientation towards a higher and more pure form of happiness is okay. It's good. I mean, that's the way the practice is set up. That's the way the mind unfolds. Uh, so we stop you know, looking for our happiness in um, things which lead to suffering for other people and ourselves. And we start to look for happiness in things which lead to joint benefit for our suffering, for ourselves and other people. And that can be more and more refined. And, and as uh, the mind becomes more and more refined, each stage of meditation is based on letting go of the uh, past happiness. We may think, experiencing great rapture in meditation, but then we discover a more refined happiness. And say, oh, well, that rapture, which I thought was so great, actually, I just it's a bit too coarse for me. <laughs> I can let that go. And then eventually even the happiness and joy just seems too coarse and we just dwell in unbounded equanimity. So the path of practice is, is like that and uh, uh, commitment to the heightened mind then um, helps us get a different perspective on what is happiness and what is unhappiness because it's, it's always relative. And as the process goes on and we find that, well, what is it that really gets in the way of a more refined happiness? It's usually something that we're identifying with. It always comes down to me, mine, what I'm holding on to, my sense of self. If we just get the sense of, sense of self out of the way, if we just get out of the way, things kind of flow naturally and they fall into place. And in developing more refined states of samadhi or concentration, then the same uh, process is true. Often just a little bit of controlling that we try to do in meditation is the thing which prevents it from going deeper. You're watching, am I doing it right? You know, a little bit of judging. You know, sit up straight. You know, is this Johnny yet? <laughs> or even just a little you know, nudging, a little bit more here, more... It's just that sense of self trying to get in there a little bit too much. And at that point, you just need to just, just, just drop it and say, whatever happens, is I'm perfectly content with this state of mind. I don't have to make it go deeper. I can't make it go deeper. The only way it's going to go deeper is just be perfectly content with just the way it is now. Get the sense of self out of the way. And then allow the process to happen naturally. And the final line of the teaching is Etang Bhutan Asasanang. This is the Buddha's teaching. So I offer this for your reflection.
So we have time for questions. Anyone who would like to ask questions, please feel free. Well, we had clothes. <laughs> Big difference. Big difference. Um, anytime that uh, we're practicing, one of the most important things is the attitude that we use. Right? There are so many ways that <clears throat> we may not think of ourselves as ascetics. And yet, we start to torture ourselves. And so, the attitude with which we practice, uh, with which we approach meditation, with which we approach our conditions, is very, very important. Uh, If we went up to northern Minnesota, practiced with uh, simple, sometimes frustrating conditions, with the attitude of, uh, I'm going to really this out. I'm better than other meditators. Well, I'm not one of those sissies who goes to a cushy meditation center like, no, I won't say anything. And um, yet that would just be reinforcing a sense of self. It would be an unwholesome motivation. Um, Even if we are in a very comfortable place, if we approach meditation with the idea that uh, I'm going to sit for two hours, you know, no matter how painful it gets, you know, I'm just going to stick with it. If it's coming from too much ego, it's just going to be ego reinforcing, reinforcing the sense of sorrow. Well, there are many other ways that we can uh, torture ourselves. <coughs> Maybe... Um, Maybe even more uh, common or more damaging is constantly criticizing ourselves. I just, I'm not good enough, whatever it is, we're not good enough, or we're hard on ourselves, and, um, you know, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't, I should be better, I, you know, just constantly hitting ourselves, <laughs> you know, you know, it's surrounded by luxury. <laughs> but constantly torturing ourselves mentally. So again, you know, is that is that what is that the right attitude? And it's not an attitude that that leads to to liberation. So the attitude with which we approach meditation is probably much much more important than whether you do anapanasati or you do physical sensations or rising and falling, whether you repeat the mantra, you know, <clears throat> whatever meditation you do or whatever type of practice you do, approaching with an attitude, 
proper attitude is important. So when we go into a situation where we challenge ourselves, you know, and sometimes just simplifying our lives is enough to bring on a few challenges, then uh, uh, it's important to know that that in itself is not burning up any old karma. But it can reveal where our attachments are. In certain situations, um, we may feel relatively peaceful, but then if you take away certain of those conditions, then very quickly we're not peaceful. It's like if the temperature is just right, it's like, oh, yeah, I love to meditate. But then if it's too cold, if it's too hot, um, can we, are we still peaceful? Can we still be peaceful? Um, if the weather's beautiful, then, oh, I love to meditate. So peaceful. If the weather is cold and rainy, day after day, <laughs> after day, then, uh, <clears throat> then it's a challenge. Can we still be peaceful with that? Or it's just, uh, it just shows us where our limitations are, which can be ben- beneficial. And that, a lot of the monastic life is like that. Um, some people look at my life and say, well, it looks like self-torture to me. Um, the Buddha said, the middle way, your, your way of life is self-torture. But uh, sometimes just simplifying one's life uh, just, just reveals more clearly where our attachments are. Oh, yes. Um, I just have a question about um, what can we do when we feel like we're criticizing or judging ourselves in the moment? Like, what can we replace that with? Think about if I have it up all the time, I spent feeling bad about what I did or judging myself, I'd have to probably build the pyramid with that time. Well, first step is being aware of it, you know, being aware that you're actually doing that because, and that's a major step because it's so easy just to perpetuate that. We may be thinking about something else, paying attention to something else, and at the same time part of our mind saying, you idiot, what'd you do that? You stupid idiot, you know. And so fully bringing that into consciousness that each time it happens, just knowing that, oh, there it is. And that is often very surprising to know how often we're criticizing ourselves and to see that. And then the next step I think is very, very important as well is is to not criticize ourselves for not for criticizing ourselves. It's like, you idiot. Oh, there you go again, you idiot. <laughs> You're supposed to be a good Buddhist practitioner, you idiot. <laughs> it should be better. So, so if uh, you know if that voice comes up and says you idiot, then just accept that fully. Okay, well this is the result of my past conditioning. 
it's not it's neither good nor bad. It's just okay. Well, this is uh, an unhelpful behavior pattern, and accept it. Okay. And then we don't add anything to it. And then it ceases. And then it may come up again. You idiot. But then you know, again, we try to accept it, and and over and over and over again, approaching it this way. It takes a lot of patience. You have to be very, very patient. It may take lifetimes. <clears throat> and then finding some skillful way to replace to, to replace it. It may be uh, just uh, a word or two or a sentence that you can say that kind of brings up something which doesn't perpetuate that self-defeating thought. And different people may find different things work. But if it leads to a sense of you know, recognizing it clearly with awareness, accepting it fully without, without trying to push it away and say, I don't want to be someone who's self-critical and push it away, you know, that's just adding more aversion to it. It's just say fully, you know, not indulging in it and not pushing it away and just say, okay, this is what's happening right now. This is the result of my past condition, the result of past karma. And then meeting it with as much as much compassion as possible. <coughs> compassion is all about empathizing with suffering. Empathizing with the suffering of other people and you're putting yourself in someone else's shoes and, and noticing where their life is difficult, you know, your heart starts to open. But do the same thing with yourself, because we are one living being as well. And when we see suffering in our own heart, then empathize with that. Have compassion for yourself. I mean, your heart starts to open. You see, this being that I call myself is has some pain there. And regularly calling ourselves idiots doesn't help to alleviate the pain. So that can can help to replace it with a, a wholesome mind state and you start to develop a sense of caring for yourself. Based on that, there's either a moment in time where it's gradual, or it's thing, or it's, you 
and I'm just curious how to like have that as a, as a possibility. It's good to know. Okay, there there are people, there were people who you know, moved beyond the line and attachment to obtain something called enlightenment, and yet it seems like so easily attached to this idea. Yeah, you know what you mean. It's the desire that leads to the end of desires. And it's helpful to have a desire that goes in a wholesome direction which can get the process going. If we try to start from the place of Okay, no desires whatsoever. The desire to purify my consciousness, well, that's just another desire, so I'll let go of that and just do whatever I want. Well, that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work so well. I mean, it's, it's very important not to become obsessed or become obsessive about one's practice. But at the same time, a long-term goal of enlightenment, nibbana, purification of consciousness, is very helpful for, for gradually you know, setting a direction in life. When the Buddha talked about desire in Pali, the, the language that you know, the suttas are in, there are two different terms. And so the, uh, the uh, term which is the cause of suffering is called tanha, that um, desire for sensual pleasures, desire for um, continue to ex- uh, uh, desire for existence, the will to continue to exist, or desire for non-existence. And the Buddha said, "Well, these always, you know, eventually lead to suffering." But there's another type, another term called chanda, which means the aspiration practice the Dhamma, the desire to practice the Dhamma, Dhamma Chanda. And that is the desire for enlightenment. So the Buddha said there's only one desire that he praises, and that's the desire to become enlightened. But as part of the process, it overcomes itself. It's like uh, different stages of meditation. You, know, you, you To get from a, a course level, maybe you desire have a desire to get to a more, a little bit more refined level, and that helps motivate. But once you're there, then you have to let go of that to allow things to deepen. And so, before you get too far on the path towards nibbana, you know, you have to start letting go of the coarser desires for enlightenment because they just get in the way. So it's a type of desire which will motivate us, hopefully, along a path which will then get rid of all desires.
the balance between judging and equanimity, and how that works in life. A certain amount of judging is actually necessary, isn't it, for functioning in life? We have responsibilities, we need to make decisions, we need to evaluate situations, and based on that, we uh, have a, a path of action. And especially if we're in positions of, of responsibility, then other times we, we have to evaluate and judge. Well, this is, this is working, this isn't, or whatever. In whatever, by whatever criteria, this is good or this is bad. So the Buddha often would teach on different levels. You know, there's kind of a social conventional level, and there's a truth to that. But then beyond that is, uh, you know, more refined Dhamma level or ultimate level. One of the most important criteria for when a judgmental mind is useful and when it's not, is is it leading to more suffering in our lives? Or is it leading to alleviation of suffering? Does it seem skillful and helpful, or is it creating more problems? Right? And so the type of judgment which create more problems, um, you're probably all familiar with that. Uh, that's, that's easy. Uh, we can see that easy and we just cl- close our eyes and before too long you know we'll start getting some of that coming up so that's that's very important to not buy into but at the same time on the conventional level the Buddha didn't say that we should just be equanimous about everything uh, certainly looking at uh, differentiating between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind is the key to right effort. Every step of the Noble Eightfold Path has to have right mindfulness and right effort. And right effort is this clear knowing of well, this is wholesome and this is unwholesome. The unwholesome mind states we, we, we try not to encourage, allow them to cease. The wholesome mind states we, we do try to encourage, allow them to come to perfection. So there's a certain judging there, but it's, you know, it's using... Uh, wisdom and, and discrimination to to kind of know what's what, what's helpful, what's leading to happiness and what's not, what's leading to benefit and what's not. There was one time where the Buddha was asking his disciples, uh, let's say someone in the Sangha is really irritating. You know, how should we uh, approach that person if, if they're misbehaving in the Sangha? And one, one disciple gave a uh, you know, fairly wise answer. He said, well, I just, I just respond with equanimity. You know? I just respond with equanimity. And the Buddha said, actually, that's, that's not quite right. <laughs> he had a high standard. He said, no, um, if someone is misbehaving in the Sangha, then uh, you have a duty to approach them and talk to them and um, you know not just to not just to let it go in that sense let it go internally I mean, it's not, internally it's not a problem but conventionally to actually approach that person and say no this is appropriate and, and what you're doing is actually um, not appropriate for this situation and in the right time in the right place and if the person is senior or 
or they're good friends or whatever, you know, then, then that works very well. So it's a bit of a balance, isn't it? You know, we can't just throw the judge, the discerning mind out the window. You know, we need that. But it's so easy just to go overboard with obsessive judging about everything. Uh, so uh, that's probably the thing which uh, is more a problem for us when we focus on that. Um, a number of us have been on various retreats and, you know, we're talking and kind of the classic stories of falling into mindful states and our meditative states, which are pretty impractical. Um, like I find myself walking into rooms and I, I have absolutely no idea when I get there why I, I went in there. Um, or, you know, staring at the 45 kinds of water in a store for 45 minutes. And it seems kind of a paradox because we practice uh, mindfulness, yet so many of the states on, on retreat uh, aren't really practical. Um, I, I guess, could you expound on that a little bit? There's only one type of water. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, some people think that monastic life is not daily life. Right? Oh, well, I want to practice in daily life, not monastic life, as if it's some rarefied, weird thing. But, you know, daily life in the monastery is very much like, okay, we have to deal with other people, we have to deal with keeping the monastery clean, we have to do, you know, there's innumerable things that we have to do make decisions on, um, uh, relate as a community in a harmonious way. The Buddha didn't just teach mindfulness. Right? He, he taught mindfulness and wisdom. And this is something that the uh, forest agents will emphasize over and over again. It's like a compound term, you know, satipanya, mindfulness and wisdom. So they're not just going on about sati, sati being mindful, be mindful, satipanya, which means you're aware, but then you respond with wisdom. You respond in the right way. It's like an awareness which is appropriate for the situation. When we're in retreat, when we're alone in hot, or when we're sitting in a meditation hall, really our, our main responsibility is just to be aware of this body and this mind, or this uh, sense of, uh, subtle sense of the nose tip. And if we're doing that, we are very much taking responsibility and, and mindful. But all it takes is us opening our eyes, and then our, our responsibility of mindfulness shifts. You know, we, we're in a room full of people, um, and having an all-around mindfulness, uh, taking in all, all the details of uh, the situation that we're in, and then responding with wisdom, responding in a way which is appropriate uh, for that particular situation, is very much um, correct practice. Uh, Ajahn Chah would, would encourage us all the time. Um, you know, it, he doesn't want people walking around the monasteries like zombies. <laughs> For example. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, 
you know, if there was a, a group situation in the monastery and people are, you know, oh, I'm being very mindful. <laughs> being very mindful, just, and they're kind of, but not really in tune with the other people around them. And then, I just was like, wake up. Wake up. You know, you're not being, that's not what we mean by being mindful. You know, like in monastic situations, for example, um, seniority is very important, um, height, everything is very, very important. And so you walk into a room, you may get trained in quickly knowing and seeing, okay, where is everyone sitting in the room? And then you find just the right place. Not too close to the teacher, not too far away. Not higher than the teacher or the senior ones, not too, you know, it's just find just the right place. And every situation is kind of like that. When to say something and when not to. <coughs> when to start saying something and knowing when to stop. <laughs> and there, then every situation really becomes like art. We're talking about you know, mindfulness and daily practice or the art of living. But then it really becomes an art of living. So when you go into the grocery store and you want to buy water, then appropriate response is make a decision. There's <laughs> <laughs> a awareness, awareness of multitude of choices. And panya, wisdom, grab one. Well, the term kama or the Sanskrit term karma, you know, has kind of been um, brought into our culture, sometimes more from a Hindu perspective uh, rather than a, a Buddhist perspective, or sometimes it's just kind of lose, used very loosely. You know, someone has something stolen from their house and say, oh, it's just his karma. Had to happen. Or, you know, it's like uh, we keep falling into the same trap over and over again and say, well, it's just my karma, as if it has to be this way. I have no choice. I was born this way. My early childhood dictated that it was always going to be this way. No, it's just my karma. But that, uh, that's, that's, that's actually not the way the Buddha taught. I mean, he, he taught moment by moment dynamism, interaction with the present moment, uh, how we respond each in every moment is literally creating our future. And so no matter how hardwired anything might be in our life, it doesn't mean it can't be changed. I mean, some things are more kind of deeply embedded, but through this constant responding to life in a wholesome, beneficial, uh, useful, mindful, wise way, then we're, we're literally um, changing, you know, it's like this this point where old karma ripens. We can't do anything about that because it's already happened. But then uh, adding, you know, however we respond to that is is very much within our power. And that's important to know because we're not victims, you know, 
we're, we're totally not victims. However we respond, you know, is within our capability, even if it's difficult. I mean, sometimes it's difficult. I'm not oversimplifying this, you know. If something really frustrating happens or something that we really don't want, then it's very difficult not to respond with anger or disappointment or you know, whatever. But to at least know that it's our choice, you know, at least know that um, we don't have to. It's not fixed that we have responded in a particular way. Even knowing that much, you know, is it, very freeing. Okay. I've been grateful, Lajan, for your teaching, for your willingness to be here, and uh, please come back. <laughs> <laughs> This is my favorite meditation setting. <laughs> As traditional after Dharma talking to um, say sadhu a few times just means well spoken. So. Thank you, John, and thank you everybody for coming tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.